This is a strange time with lots of pressures and stress. I can't make it all disappear, of course, but I can offer you a way to stay hopeful, grounded, and focused for the new year. It's called Productivity Tools 2021. Simple strategies to help you be calm, mindful, relaxed, and productive. Themes include a working-at-home self-assessment, startup and shutdown routines, three ways to use fasting for clarity, a method to replace bad habits, spring clean-up-your-life tips, and so much more. During December and January only, we are offering a two-for-one special. Get the 2021 Focus Toolkit and all the 2020 organizational tools with their how-to recordings. For only $19.99, you can have two toolkits for the price of one, how-to recordings to get organized, and invitations to 12 months of upcoming Focus tutorials and recordings. But don't wait too long to decide. After January 31st, the price will go up to $27.99 and will only include the 2021 toolkit. So don't miss out on this great deal. Get in on your two-for-one Productivity Tools special right away before the deadline. Go to shiftworkplace.co slash productivity tools. That's shiftworkplace.co slash productivity tools. Hello, Culture and Leadership Connections podcast listeners. Today, I am very excited to bring to you an interview with Benedict Beaumont. Benedict is the founder of the Breathing Space School of Breathwork and is a breathwork facilitator, yoga teacher, and founder of the Breathing Space School. He runs transformational workshops and life-changing retreats in the south of England, France, and Canada. He also trains others who share his vision to do the same. And Benedict always likes to start out with a couple of breaths. So Benedict, before we get into anything else, would you like to start us out that way? I would be delighted to. And Marie, thank you so much for inviting me on and uh, introducing me to everyone. So if you're listening to this, uh, one of the easiest techniques that I've found to come into presence, to kind of really connect with someone, is to just take three or four breaths with them. And I start almost every single meeting that I have with someone now just taking a few breaths. And the difference that it makes is incredible. So as you're listening, I would love for you to just take a few breaths along with me and Marie. So let's start. Thank you. It's amazing how calming that is, isn't it? It makes such a difference. Mm-hmm. And especially breathing with someone else. It's mm. the benefit of doing something in unity with another person or with a group. Well, this is one of the, the magical qualities of breathwork is its ability to connect. Now, often we use breathwork to connect with that deepest, highest part of ourselves. But it also has an amazing quality of being able to connect with other people as well. Mm-hmm. And maybe with everything else that's living. Yes, absolutely. It does, actually. One of the practices that we have is uh, something I call nature breathing, where we really 
imagine breathing in with something in the natural world, a tree or a flower or even an animal, could even be a rock actually, and really, really try and, I don't know, synchronise, relate, just almost be together with that one object. And it's a simple yet incredibly profound exercise. Imagine if everyone in the world were doing that, how much more respectful we would be of the planet. One of the sayings that I love is if we just concentrated on ourselves and didn't worry about what everyone else was doing, the world would probably take care of itself. Mm-hmm. So I really agree with that. If we could all individually connect with you know, the environment around us on a, a deep, deep level, I don't think we'd have any problems with pollution or environmental waste or anything like that. I just think we would be too connected and mm-hmm. harming anything outside would be like harming ourselves. Well, if everything needs to be united and at one, then when you think about it, anything that separates us from everything around us and everybody and, you know, like you said, rocks and plants and animals and people and everything, anything that separates us from that experience is ultimately not going to be healthy. Mm -hmm. So I just um, wanted to ask the audience to tell you a little bit more about who you are. I mean, we know that you founded this breathwork school and that you do breathwork, which I'm going to ask you to talk about too, but I'm just wondering if you tell me a little bit about yourself. I mean, you grew up in England. Tell us something about Benedict. Well, from my accent, from my Hollywood villain accent, uh, (laughs) probably tell that I'm not Canadian. I've been here um, just over a year as a resident, but uh, I've been coming to Alberta and Edmonton for seven or eight years because my wife is from this area and you can't see me but I'm just like a normal middle-aged bloke I'm bald I've got a bit of a a, a beer belly I love watching sports so I'm a really kind of regular kind of guy for most of my adult professional life I was a high school teacher um, a secondary school teacher we call call it in England um, for about 10 to 15 years before that I worked in IT in my 20s Um, But by the time I was sort of 38, 39, I was kind of burnt out for a second time and I've reached the end of the road as a teacher. I'm sure you will know a teacher or two somewhere who works themselves into exhaustion, just giving and giving and giving. And I was like that as well. So about seven or eight years ago, I kind of thought, all right, I'm done with that. I need to start living for myself a little bit more. So I quit my job. I flew off to Delhi, actually, to in India, and I bought a motorbike and I got lost for several months just driving an old battered Enfield around the dusty, dusty high roads of uh, India. I crossed the Himalayas. I went through the deserts of Rajasthan. I ended up in... Anyway, I had lots of adventures. And that's where I met my wife, Jen. And I kind of made a decision at that point that uh, I was going to live my life really fully. Uh, Before that, in my 30s, whilst I was a teacher, I was a practicing Buddhist. And I was pretty dedicated. I was getting up early in the morning to to meditate. Uh, I was practicing yoga as well, and I've been doing that since my, my late 20s. But nothing really stuck with me. I was getting a bit at the end of it, as far as I could go with yoga and Buddhism and teaching all changed. So for the next five or six years, me and my wife, we had a, a life of adventure, I suppose. We lived all over the over the world. We lived in um, Thailand and Bali. We lived out the back of a car traveling around North America for a while. We lived in France. We ran bed and breakfast together. 
in, in England and in France. We lived in Vancouver. We trained to be yoga teachers there. And then all of that changed kind of when I discovered breathwork in 2014. And I kind of realized that that was going to be my calling in life. And uh, a year or two later, I trained to be a breathwork facilitator and then opened the Breathing Space School of Breathwork. Hmm. There we go. How's about that for potted history? That is great. And now you have a new baby who's just starting to smile and laugh <laughs> That's right. and is probably doing really great with breathing. <laughs> it's She is actually. It's really funny um, watching a new life starting to breathe. As a breathwork facilitator, I'm fascinated by breathing. So I study it. I think about it. It's my hobby as well as my passion. And it's really interesting to watch um, our little daughter starting to breathe. And actually, it started before she was born when she used to practice breathe uh, when she was in her mummy's tummy. Um, we used to, to see her practice breathing and exercising her lungs. And then when she comes out now, uh, one of the things that I'm really noticing with her breathing is how it's an emotional reset button how she does not breathe, how she stops breathing in between her emotional changes. Because kids can go from like completely calm to screaming banshees like within a second and then they can calm completely down in a breath or two later. And it really is linked to their breath. And I really notice there's a kind of moment when they stop breathing and it's like this emotional dial gets switched either to reset or to kind of hyper or to calm or to happiness like that. And, I, and I'm noting a real link between her breath and her emotional, emotional changes. What an interesting experience to be able to watch that from the beginning of a life, given what you know about breathing. Mm, absolutely. And you know all the delightful sounds that babies make, all the snuffling and all the kind of snorting and all the, the growling, especially as she's feeding. So noticing the difference when she mouths breathes and when she nose breathes, you know, from a technical breathwork point of view, it's, it's fascinating for me. Very much so. Kind of like Piaget when he was watching his children grow up and taking notes on all of their developmental levels. Mm. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about your childhood. So can you share a couple of incidents from your childhood that you think were formative for you? Oh, now there's an interesting question, which I've not been asking in an interview before. Okay, so I grew up in the 1970s and 1980s in a town, and now it's a city called Brighton, which is on the south coast of England, uh, just by the sea. If you imagine where London is directly south of that. And I grew up in the suburbs. We used to go on family holidays uh, through France. We used to all pile in the car, uh, my mum, my dad and my sister and me. And we'd drive for sort of hours or days, which isn't much in Canada, but for, in England, driving more than about two or three hours, most people won't do. And we'd drive for sort of you know two days to get somewhere. And this was a long time, obviously, before iPads and phones. Uh, and the way that the, we got entertained was listening to story tapes as we were driving. And I have a very strong memory of a book called My Family and the Other Animals, which is about um, a guy called Gerald Durrell growing up in Corfu in the 1930s. And he was obsessed with natural history, sort of the, uh, the natural world around us. That what really grabbed me was the idea of traveling to a new country, starting again in a kind of beautiful Shangri-La, uh, which Greece was in the 1930s. It was you know, very different from a, a gray and dreary England. And that excitement of kind of traveling off to somewhere new made a huge impression on me. And I have been 
pretty much on the road living out of a suitcase, I would say, probably since my early 20s. And coming to Canada, uh, you know, I felt like I was starting a real new chapter in this kind of exciting, new, magical wonderland of a country. Because although it's not hot like it is in Corfu in Greece, your winters here are just spectacular for someone coming from England. The, the, the blue skies and the, and the stillness and, of course, everything, how it kind of gets frozen into this magical wonderland, um, I think really, really comes back to those hours that I would spend. Even when we weren't travelling in a car, once we got to our campsite, I would still every single day sit in the car and listen to this story. Really, really comes back to that kind of magical time of adventure and inspiration when I was very young, that I think my parents really passed on to me this kind of love of exploring a different culture and a different place. And the love of stories. And a love of stories as well, yes. That's really a lovely incident. Thank you for sharing that. What about when you were a little older, like say a teenager, anything from there that seems to be significant for you right now that you can recall? Well, I can tell you a story if you like. Sure. I'm thinking when I was 18, actually. Sure. Uh, is that too late? No, go right ahead. I was at university and I could play guitar and I used to sing songs and I met a guy and um, he was a year older than me which when you're 18, a 19-year-old seems very worldly wise and, you know, full of experience. And he was telling me how he, uh, the summer before, he'd been hitching around Europe and busking um, around Italy. And he said, well, do you fancy coming busking with me? We'll hitch out there during our Easter holidays and see if we can come back with some money. And so I went hitching around Europe when I was 18. I started off with £10 in my pocket uh, when we crossed the channel and all sorts of adventures happened like I had to we couldn't get a, a lift out so I smuggled myself on the Orient Express <laughs> and got kicked out in I think it was Strasbourg at four o'clock in the morning in a snowstorm and had to try and hitch my way across the Alps I got lifts with uh, Dominican monks I met the principal violinist or the ex-principal violinist of the, one of the Viennese orchestras who'd had a mental breakdown and now was a sort of busker stroke tramp. And again, that ability to just, I suppose, be excited. You know, we slept in doorways occasionally. Sometimes we slept in a hostel, but sometimes we did just sleep in doorways. But that excitement of being out on the road and going out and busking every day and singing, uh, I look back that, on that now with great fondness. And I came back about two and a half, three weeks later with 200 pounds in my pocket, uh, <laughs> which is about, you know, $350, which 30 years ago was quite a good amount for an 18 year old. So it was an incredible uh, two weeks then. And that would be after you finished paying for food and that sort oh, of yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You did quite well uh, in your initial business experience. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it wasn't about the money. It was. It's never about the money. It's about the experience. But, you know, there's a nice little gift on the side. Then that was a, a lovely thing to have with me. It was for sure. So from the groups you were born into, I mean, you're, you're born into a family, you're born into a culture and a race and a time and a language. Perhaps you're also born into a religion. Sounds like you moved into Buddhism later and then out of it maybe again. What were, from the groups you were born into, what would you say has influenced you? What can you recall has been formative from the group perspective? That's another great question. You have some really interesting questions, Marie, actually, which I'm, I'm really enjoying thinking about. So uh, my mum was a Quaker uh, and I was raised as a Quaker, which is 
Uh, and British Quakers, I think, are similar to, to Canadian Quakers, which are very different to American Quakerism, which I, I believe is still quite puritanical in its beliefs, whereas uh, British Quakerism is the most liberal of religions until it is virtually not a religion. I know Quaker, not just Quaker atheists, but I know Quaker pagans, I know Quaker Buddhists, I know Quaker this, that and the others, because what unites Quakerism is the way that they worship, which is really just to sit in silence with each other and to feel, uh, and when someone feels inspired, um, feels the call of the light to uh, spirit, they have various languages, words around it, which aren't particularly Christian, they'll stand up and minister. So it's a very egalitarian religion because there isn't a priesthood, there isn't a service, there aren't songs, but we gather together in silence and to just to, to recognise and acknowledge the kind of non-material aspect to our lives, which in some ways as a, you know, as a kid growing up was very boring. <laughs> to have to sit in silence for 15 minutes or an hour on Sundays was, was deathly, but it really has given me a huge understanding, respect around that. Quakers are also politically very active and one of the most liberal reformist religions ever. They've been at the forefront of so many different social changes from the abolition of slavery to the reform of the prison system to even things in recently like um, abolishing landmines, LBTQ, sexual equality. They've been active in that area for much longer than any other religion. So I'd say as a, as a group, as an influence on me, that was a great gift. It's maybe not afraid of religion and spirituality, actually, which many people who aren't exposed to that, that can be. So I'm very grateful for, for my upbringing as a Quaker. Yeah, it made you open. It gave you a foundation and the foundation also of silence and also the sense of waiting for something to happen in its own time rather than forcing it through a particular schedule or agenda or or order of things. If somebody is inspired to speak, they do, and if not, they don't. And the respect of the silence, I would think, has a pretty strong connection to the breathwork too. It does. Uh, And I'm I'm sure you know this as a a kind of facilitator or a workshop leader or a teacher. There's a moment when, you know, if you're in, in a class or a circle with a group of people that you're leading and you ask a question, and then there's a moment, and it may be just maybe a moment, or it may be a long time before someone puts their hands up or someone speaks or someone shares something. And for many people, that moment is the most terrifying, awkward moment. Is someone going to speak? Is it just going to be silence? And it can feel, when you first start doing it, it can feel a terrible. But it also, you learn to love that moment of kind of almost pregnancy, of like becoming, of what is going to emerge from that. And I really love that slight, and it is terrifying sometimes that, you know, is everything you're saying just going above people's heads? Do they understand you? But yet there's just this magic of you don't know quite what's going to come out of it. So I think my background in stillness and waiting really helped me enjoy those moments. And not that many people understand how important it is to wait in silence after asking a question. Mm. You may need to give an example, but then you you have to wait before that, wait after it. And that silence is necessary for people to formulate their thoughts and for things to emerge. Like you said, it's a kind of pregnancy. 
in coaching people sometimes when they're negotiating their salaries in, in an interview, I've had this experience where I say to people that, you know, you ask a question or you make a statement and then you wait. And if you break the silence, the negotiation will not go well. <laughs> you have to wait for the other person to speak in their own time. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, interesting. So those were great examples, Benedict. I really like them. And um, does your name, I just wanted to ask away because it's a lovely name too. So Benedict, like blessed, right? Yeah. Did your parents have some special reason for choosing that name? Well, have you heard of the phrase nominative determinism? I have, but I can't recall a definition. <laughs> well, means, uh, your name <laughs> defines who you are and what you do. Okay. So Benedict means blessed and Beaumont means beautiful mountain, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, the mountain as a logo and as a concept features on a lot of my graphics, I suppose. Um, in fact, you may even see it as my Zoom graphic right now. Uh, and I have a huge love for the mountains. So I suppose my spiritual home, where I spent many years actually, is in the French Alps in a, in a, a town called Val d'Isère, which is at 2000 meters. It's a very high town. Now, I would love to say that my parents called me Benedict from some higher reason, um, but they called me Benedict because they didn't want me to be called Benjamin, which was sorted short, which would be shortened to Benji. <laughs> so they called me Benedict, which makes me sound way, way more poncy and way more high class than I actually am. Really, I'm a bit of a gutter snipe, but I think my parents had ideas above their station because Benedict James Beaumont does in fact sound like I'm someone, you know, with a with a great pedigree and a, or a lineage or something rather than just, um, you know, someone from the suburbs of, of a backwater town in England. <laughs> well, you do have a pedigree. Everybody does. It's their own lineage. So that, that was very interesting what you said about the groups that you were born into from um, groups that you chose to belong to because you have experienced quite a bit traveling around the world. What aspects of those cultures would you say you have adopted? From different cultures that I've been mm -hmm. to and visited around the world. It could also be also the culture of, for example, um, being a you know the yoga family or the the culture of the breathwork community. Those are also cultures. Any group where people sure. establish some common understandings. Well, really, this is almost at the heart of what I do now, actually, Marie, because I am a breathwork facilitator. I teach people about breathwork, but breathwork is only a tool. And there are many different tools that people can have in in their locker or in their quiver. There are many different things that we can do to pull out, to, to try and get to where we're really trying to get to. And this is something actually I think is probably even, you know, where we're trying to get to with breathwork. And that is that sense of community, that sense of real belonging and really real connection with people. Because we may know lots and lots of people in our lives and have lots of connections with people and lots of kind of conversations, but how many times do we actually really properly connect at a deeper level, at a real level where we kind of, we're not just talking about, you know, where we're going to on holidays or what our day's been like. We're actually having a, a real kind of moment of emotional intimacy with someone. And breath work is one of those ways that we can do that. And through the many groups that I've experienced in my life, some of them touch on that in different ways. The breathwork community is very supportive and very open. So that's a great question. Things that I've learned from different communities that I've been in. 
Well, I'll tell you, when I lived for a long time in, in France, and one thing that I learned from the French was their love of good cuisine, <laughs> to take this in a slightly different direction. And I am a massive foodie now. I am addicted to the Food Network on TV. <laughs> That's my go-to uh, if I need to just chill out and just kind of do something a little bit mindless. I would say if we're talking about a geographical place and a culture, it is the importance of good, tasty nutrition um, and how there is no substitute for that. I spent quite a lot of time in Nepal um, traveling through the mountains there and I think I really learned a love of hiking in the mountains, walking on, on treks through there. Uh, and since then I walked all over the Alps as well. So I've learned a real deep appreciation and awe, I think, for, for the natural environment around me from the Nepalese, I think. Yeah. So learning to be aware of nature at various different levels, depending on where you are. A reverence, I suppose, is, a the, reverence, is the word for it. Yeah, reverence, awe. Yeah, that sense of reverence is one thing that you maybe had that already, though. I just had a flashback to um, trailing along through the Sagamata National Park and just feeling closer to God than I've ever felt before. It's probably just that you expanded on it as you got older. Mm. And I can certainly identify with the love of good food. My husband pointed out an article to me the other day about the French teaching children about the pleasures of life, to appreciate the pleasure of savoring the food as you eat it, to appreciate the pleasure of the feeling of a clothing as you put it on. The education of the senses, that is something that the uh, the French do with their children so that they kind of taste these five different cheeses and describe the flavor and which one pleases you most. <laughs> I was thinking that is lovely. I wish I would have known about that when my children were younger. Um, but part of that sort of idea that life is to be savored that you get mm. from, the, from, from the French, don't you think? I absolutely do. I'm, and I cheese, I'm a bit of a cheese head, actually. And there is, I really miss, you know, the variety and the accessibility of cheeses uh, that you can get in France and Europe here, just everywhere. It's a, you, you can get very good cheeses here in Canada, but they're just not quite so accessible as they are in Europe. That's true. My go-to place is the Italian store. <laughs> <laughs> they have the most uh, variety of cheeses from around the world. Um, so how would you say your temperament affects the way you see the world everybody's born with some things that are kind of who they are you, start, you see it from the time they're babies and you know when people remember them later like oh yeah he did that when he was four and then when he was 18 we saw it again you know so what would you say is your temperament uh well you know all of those can be learned you know it's not just what we're born with it's what we learn from our parents and those who are close to us but that's it's my second question so you can't answer that yet oh i see <laughs> So the temperament that I was born with, I think one of the things that I was born with, this is something that my wife points out, is that I gain energy from being around people. Uh, and I love to be in community with people. And I need a little bit of space to myself, not a huge amount. I need a kind of like a separate bedroom or something. But actually, I would really thrive in a traditional village community or a shared accommodation almost like you might find in a, an African village or even in a monastery where, or a kind of commune, something like that. I, I really thrive in those situations. And I've, in, in my life, I've lived in various, various communities like that throughout my life. So that's one thing I think it was a temperamental thing that I get my kind of love to being 
communication uh, in connection and community with people is something that I have always had. Mm-hmm. And then the personality part would be what you've grown into because of uh, your education, your experiences, how you embraced or didn't embrace obstacles as they came up. So all of those things would have to do with how you developed your personality Mm. afterwards. And that also would be part of the social context, which we've discussed a bit already. Anything that stands out for you in that? Yes, I'll just talk a little bit here about stepping into my sovereignty and stepping away from being someone who was afraid to go out and start a business, to go out and to move to a different country. Um, someone who was afraid to take risks with their life. Now, I have been taking risks with my life, all of my life, because you know I left my first job in my 20s when I was being paid uh, six figures, actually, as a 27-year-old. I got bored and I walked away from that. I carried on doing that. I you know, quit a job in IT where I was being paid a lot. I quit my job in teaching and I didn't know what was coming. But each time I did that, I grew back stronger. But it wasn't until I was in my mid-40s until I started breathing space that really I stepped into my power, into my calling, into being and doing what I was really meant to do in the world. And the feeling of confidence or you are where you are meant to be like that when you finally do that is an incredible feeling that you are doing exactly what you are meant to be doing and you are in the right place. There's no feeling quite like that. So I think that would be my lesson, I suppose, my my learning about my personality. I've been taking risks all my life with my life, but there was a point where actually everything started to make sense and I really felt change and a shift into doing what I wanted to be and being completely happy with who I was and where I was and what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I'm Did, not sure if that completely answered your question. No, it really does. It, it's great. I was just thinking about what you said. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is a uh, time in your life when you, you felt, and I'm sure you've had many, but uh, when you felt that what you understood the world to be was not, in fact, how other people around you experienced it and you were coming from a cultural perspective so a kind of a disconnect or a surprise or something that struck you that way Mm. I think I've always been a student of human nature even from when we were at school and we started having to make choices about the subjects that we would study and in England we do that I think earlier than you do in Canada you know when you're 13 14 you have to make your choices for your GCSEs which are the examinations that you take when you're 16 and then your A-levels which you take your exams in 18 and I always wanted to choose the humanities so I chose geography when I was 14 and history and then I chose economics and politics and philosophy and then because I wanted to understand why and how the world worked and so just through those studies I came aware that actually everyone wasn't quite the same as was what I thought. When I got to university I studied something called anthropology and I'm not sure if you have come across that it's not quite so popular these days but anthros is greek for man and apology is science so it's really the science of man but it is a study of how we are created and how we create culture and society and so i really studied a lot about how we are creatures of our own upbringing and our own cultural understanding and just what we understand to be right doesn't mean that everyone else will understand to be right and one of the examples around this that i always remember is magic how magic actually physically exists for for much of the world as a way of thinking in the way that rationality exists for us in the West. 
Yeah, that's what we believe in. That's that is how the world works, and that's how we understand it. And of course, it's right. And of course, this is the way the world works. But if you speak to someone where shamanism, for instance, is the dominant mode of thinking, then shamanism is the paradigm in which you think, and how everything can only make sense, and everything does make sense in regards to that. So, I kind of felt that I was aware of that quite early on from a kind of intellectual point of view if you see what I mean, because, and I found it absolutely fascinating to kind of think how different, different people and different cultures and different societies um, understood and thought about things. Yes. And I think everybody should have to study anthropology because it helps you to think about the big questions. Mm. What does it mean to be a human being and what is human nature and what is cultural? (laughs) At the time, I do remember thinking as a 19 year old, maybe I shouldn't think about this stuff at this age, I'm a bit too young because it really did blow my mind. It affected incredibly how I think and approach the world, actually, about that kind of relativism of how just because you think strongly about something doesn't mean that is right and shared by everyone. And some of the things that you you know I studied particularly was just probably not appropriate for a, a 19, 20 year old to try and get their head around. So why not? That's the age of abstract reasoning. Well, yes. For my dissertation, I wrote about Aztec human sacrifice and cannibalism and how that played such an important part in their ritual existence, not just mm-hmm. both their existential world. And that was probably a little bit early for me to try and get my head around why the Aztecs thought human sacrifice was necessary and important and they had to do it. Right. But what I'm actually talking about is more personal. You know, anthropology is always looking at something from the outside and then eventually making some kind of a judgment about it. Even if you suspend the judgment for a while, you end up judging at some point. Definitely. But when you run into something that just sort of shakes you, and even just in a daily life, for example, when I met my husband's family, in my family, people would speak and talk and vie for each other. And it was very lively at the meal table. And every once in a while, my dad would say, I can't even get a word edgewise in my own family. And then everyone would get, okay, okay, dad, what would you like to say? But it was like, it was very lively. <laughs> and in my husband's family, nobody spoke. The only people who spoke were the mother and the father. And if others wanted to speak, they had to go through a kind of process of, you know, waiting to be approved to speak. And the whole thing was just so foreign to me. And I thought, how could this happen that I met somebody who doesn't even live that far away from me? And it's so different. And it gave me kind of a flashback to when I was five and I was invited to the birthday party of a child who was in my class. The the family was Italian and they owned a pasta factory. Mm. And so they brought us to the pasta factory for a tour for the birthday party. And then after that, then they made spaghetti and sauce on and everything. And although I had a very diverse experience to a lot of different cultures, I had not been exposed to Italian culture or Italian food. And it just sort of shocked me. I remember running away afraid because of the food smells were so unfamiliar to me when I was five. And to me, that was the same kind of flashback that I had from the, that other experience. So I'm wondering if there's a time when you had felt that there was this kind of a disrupt to you personally. Uh, that's a beautiful example, actually. I could picture that immediately. And I certainly can remember experiences like that from when I was a child, actually, going around to people's houses where it felt completely different. And some of them were like, you know, really quiet places where kids weren't allowed to speak. And then some of them were like bedlam going on with everyone shouting and everyone being, you know, laughing and joking and teasing each other in a way that that my family didn't. So that's something 
Actually, I think your question has actually just opened up something for me. One of the ways that my family, especially from my father, show affection is by teasing. It's kind of being a little bit cruel and, you know, kind of laughing. And I thought that was just completely normal. It was kind of very, not necessarily rough and tumble, but, you know, we'd tease each other about something that was going on. And then a little bit later, when I was an adult, one of my girlfriends said, there's a bit of a cruel atmosphere between you and your father. Actually, some of the humour isn't always about love. Sometimes it's just mean. And I've never thought about it about like it like that before. But actually, when I came to look at it and I came to experience other families where there wasn't that kind of constant needling, I kind of made me think, hang on, you know, is there something else that's happened in my relationship with my father um, going on? Uh, and it really taught, well, you know, for my message of how to love someone and how to communicate that love from someone, the example that I got was to kind of to joke and to tease and to, you know, just to play around with them. But actually, I kind of learned a little bit later on through other families that it doesn't have to be like that. And sometimes not everyone will experience a kind of joking camaraderie in that same way. For some people, that can be very hurtful. So that's a great example. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I really feel that actually, you know, at the time when I was young and when I was a young adult, that's how I showed my affection to people. I, you know, tease them, you know, be a little bit jokey and a little, maybe even a little bit mean with them. It's then, also a very male way of relating. It is a male way. You see men always, you know, joke insulting each other all the time. You rarely see a man compliment another man. It's completely different from the way women will communicate with each other typically. But yeah, that's interesting insights. So just a couple more questions here. That we're getting close to the end of the interview. And I wanted to ask you, when people hire you, what's the best way for them to be able to work with you that brings out the best in Benedict Beaumont? I suppose honesty mm-hmm. and a willingness to change, uh, a willingness to be vulnerable. The kind of work that I do, uh, which is taking people to some really transformative spaces where people can do quite phenomenal healing or letting go of trauma or habits or energy blockages or things that are holding them back can really only happen if people are willing to be honest, being willing to be open and willing to be vulnerable, which isn't an easy thing for many, many people to be do. We are, you know, we live in a world where we have to put on a face, where we have to be strong, where we're rewarded for you know, keeping on trying and, and, and making an effort. Whereas in what I do for real growth, there has to be an element of risk, which means making yourself vulnerable and being honest with that. Mm-hmm. Anything else you'd like to say? Well, I need to say thank you for the opportunity to come in and talk. And uh, you've asked me some really interesting questions that have really sparked some, some strong memories in me. So thank you for that. Uh, you've got great skill as an interviewer. Thank you. That's kind of you to say. <laughs> that's, that's a pleasure. I'm kind of also trying to think of some wise words to say before well, I leave. You know, the wise words might come to you as you do a little promo. Uh, what would you like to promote? <laughs> Here's your spotlight. Okay, well, I'm a breathwork facilitator and I facilitate breathwork, which isn't just 
exercises to strengthen your respiratory system or to give you physical well-being when you really use breath work it can take people to one of the most deepest transformational spaces that you can go to sometimes i describe it as therapy for those people who don't like talking about their problems or i talk it about sometimes say it's like meditation for people who can't meditate or even plant medicine for those who don't do drugs so <laughs> it is a really powerful easy accessible way for huge transformational change to happen in your life it's easy and it's essentially free once you learn how to do it so now, you have some courses you have some free sessions you have some trainings where can people go to find these things you can come to my website which is makesomebreathingspace.com mm -hmm. and i've got plenty of courses on there um, some free courses some paid courses I run a weekly workshop every Thursday afternoon in Alberta time. But if it's not with me, then find someone else to breathe with. I'm not precious about people coming to me. I would just like to promote breathing with people. And as I said a bit earlier, breathing is a tool that we use really to connect. So I think what I would like to end with is I would love, Marie, for people to connect more. Connect to each other on a deeper more intimate, more emotionally satisfying level. And I would like them to connect more with themselves, with that deepest, highest, truest, wisest, kindest, most loving version of themselves that exists in everyone. And breathwork is a tool that we can use to do that. Uh, but there are many other tools as well. So that is my wish for everyone to feel more, to be more, and to be more fully alive and present in the world. Now, that was beautiful. I knew it would come when you had to start thinking about something different. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you ask people if they have some final words and they can't think of anything, but as soon as you switch the topic, they suddenly remember. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're a great interviewer. Well, thank you. It's been really a pleasure to listen to your story and to learn from you and from your wisdom. And I feel that this connecting work that you're doing is so necessary for the healing of the planet and the human race. And I applaud you for that work. Thank you, Marie, for the opportunity. Benedict Beaumont worked as a secondary school teacher for 15 years, but quit to travel on a motorbike across India and Nepal, where he met his wife. They traveled together all over the world until he discovered breathwork and trained to be a facilitator. He believes that one of the magical qualities of breathwork is the ability to connect with our higher selves, with other people, and with the environment. He claims that when we reach a deep level of connection, harming the outside would be like harming ourselves. I'm so glad you could join me on this exploration of the inner and outer travels of Benedict Beaumont. And I hope that you will share this episode with someone who you think could benefit from it. If you have an idea for a guest, or would like to invite me to speak on a show that you host or listen to, please contact me at marie at shiftworkplace.com. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast and for sharing these intimate, meaningful moments with our powerful guests. May culture and leadership connections continue to guide and inspire your day. This podcast would not be possible without the expertise of our Culture and Leadership Connections production team. A big thank you and shout out to Mike Kurlander for audio production and editing. To Malvika Kathpal for the show notes. 
Bernadette Guadiz for online web and social media management and promotions, Celine Bayogo for design, and Kirsten Hoyer for website and branding. Thank you so much. Hey, Culture and Leadership Connections podcast listeners. Do you love these insightful and moving interviews published twice monthly for your listening pleasure? You may not know that it costs between $300 and $500 per month to pay for our podcast episodes. Shocking, but true. Well, now you can help support this podcast by showing your love with a little skin in the game real money on the Patreon website. For as little as $5 or as much as $50 a month, you can contribute to keep culture and leadership connections alive and healthy. Your donation is invaluable in helping us connect the hearts and minds of people across cultures and professions for happier and more humane workplaces. I know you will call on your inner generosity, knowing that your contribution is a practical demonstration of love and support. Check out the patreon.com slash culture and leadership connections page to see what subscription level feels right for you and find out about the special loyalty perks at each patron level. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N patreon.com slash culture and leadership connections. Thank you for your generosity.